Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Open Deeply is a podcast about life stories. Each guest is featured in two episodes. In the first, they share their pivotal, life-shaping experiences that profoundly affected them. And in the second, we dig into the trajectory-changing life lessons that those experiences revealed. And often, we discover that the insights our guests gained turned out to be universal truths that connect us all. Today, our guest is Frenchie Davis, and it's actually our second episode with Frenchie. Last episode, Frenchie told us a series of stories from her life, and today we're going to dig deeper and unpack some of what Frenchie told us. But of course, first, a little bit more about Frenchie. Songbird, Broadway babe, and truth slayer, Frenchie Davis is a world-renowned vocalist from Los Angeles, California, and a graduate of Howard University. Her theatrical credits include the Broadway cast of Rent, Dreamgirls, Cinderella Enchanted, Jesus Christ Superstar, and the national tour of Ain't Misbehavin', for which she earned a Grammy nomination. She was also a featured performer on Wanda Sykes' Hilarious, and she's done voiceover work for the hit Nickelodeon cartoon Wonder Pets, an outspoken advocate for Black, Brown, and LGBTQIA plus communities, Frenchie continues to wow audiences with her unique and versatile talent and keeps them in stitches with her unapologetically witty outlook on life. All right. Well, before we get started, as always, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. Please note that this episode may have some heavy themes. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, therapist, or emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. All right. With that being said, Frenchie, I'd like to start out with a first question. And I'd like to lead in by just saying, in the last episode, if somebody wasn't paying attention, they just think that it was about your hysterectomy. But if one were to really listen, it's very clear that it's about a series of awakenings all discussed within the framework of your hysterectomy. Right. And those awakenings might be labeled... One might be body-based, one that's sexually based, one spiritually based, and one relationally based, and they all interweave. Regarding your body image, would you feel comfortable broadening the scope? How did you feel about your body image first as a teenager, then before the hysterectomy, and now? Okay, so as a teenager, I struggled with body image a great deal and thought that because I was fat that I wasn't beautiful or sexy. And then I would say like around college that really started to shift for me. So 
when I was 19 years old, that's when I got my first job as a professional performer. And that was with a theater company in Germany doing Little Shop of Horrors. And I remember going on a spa day with a couple of my friends from the show. And the spa that we were going to, it was co-ed and it was, you know, completely nude. And ever since that experience, something shifted for me that summer in Germany. Well, first of all, just having a break from being black in America was lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) And don't get me wrong. White supremacy is a global phenomenon. So don't let me, I mean, the Holocaust happened in Germany. So like, let's not act like it's all rainbows and butterflies over there either. However, I will say that when you are black and American and you start to travel to other parts of the world, it is a different experience than being black in America. You know, both James Baldwin and Malcolm X talk about that quite a bit. Well, yeah, James Baldwin had a place in uh, Paris. And yeah, I mean, Josephine Baker did the same thing. So particularly black creative people, I don't know, I think we are given a little bit more space to like find ways to like accept ourselves. We have a little bit more breathing room to go on that journey when you're not in America. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. (laughs) I was 19 years old at that time. And that was really the beginning of a shift for me. Also going to Howard, going to a historically black college where the things that Eurocentric society taught me to dislike about my body, I was in an environment where that was considered beautiful and, and sexy. You know, and don't get me wrong, I mean, there are Black men who, who fat shame also. However, it's different. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because Black men can fat shame all they want to. I know what they fucking grandmama look like. Okay. Somebody like fat girl pussy. I don't give a fuck what you say. So it's a different. <laughs> it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true yeah. I mean. <laughs> you know what i'm saying like let's not, don't, don't play games with me so I, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was different you know and also howard's campus uh, they call it the mecca of black education and part of the reason they use that particular word is because it is sort of this mecca and gathering space for black people that span the whole diaspora, Black people from all over the world, not just Black Americans. And so being in that environment where, I mean, all the Nigerian and Jamaican students was on me, okay? Like, (laughs) (laughs) they they was all trying to get chose, you know? (laughs) So it was a different, all that to say, my experience going to college on a historically black campus and then beginning my performance career with theater companies overseas and then experiencing social events where people were naked and it was normal and nobody was staring and nobody cared and people with stomachs fatter than mine, you know? And so that was the beginning of my coming into the understanding that it's really not about other people's perceptions of beauty because you know everybody's entitled to define beauty however they deem fit 
Conversely, they are not entitled to tell me how to define how I view my beauty. And so that kind of began the journey of unlearning the things that I was taught to feel about my body and really starting to accept. And don't get me wrong, I'm one of those big girls who believes that like part of accepting your body is taking care of it. So I, you know, I work out, I do my yoga, I, I'm uppity about my food ingredients, everything's organic and all of that. But for me, it's not about whether or not it's going to make me thinner. It's about my quality of life and about maintaining agility as I age and, you know, things like that, like long-term wellness. But the whole acceptance piece, I feel like that has just been an ever-evolving thing with maturity, but it began that summer in Germany and while I was a student at Howard. And I think even now it's my thighs, for instance, which I get compliments on all the time these days, but it's so crazy. I used to be so insecure about my my thighs. Up until maybe two years ago, all of my skirts were like pencil skirt length. And even when I would post like my naked adjacent pictures, you know, I still (laughs) having my thighs out outside. That was just not some shit I did. And I don't know what something happened between when I found out I was going to have my hysterectomy and after my hysterectomy. But I remember it was this year I bought denim booty shorts for the first time since, I don't know, high school, maybe junior high. I saw that on Instagram. You look, you look great. You looked happy. Thank you. I mean, most of my outfits this summer have been thighs out, even like wearing my arms out or I don't wear bras anymore. Like I just been out and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) And then not wearing a bra thing, you know, I wear a 38K. I've been wearing bras since first grade. And so there's a certain freedom that I've seen smaller bodied women be allowed to have that wasn't always allowed for women with my body type. And we don't have no fucking control over, I I didn't have no control over growing titties in the first grade. Like I had no control over that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, right. But it's the hypersexualization, the adultization that we project onto particularly black and brown girls who develop quicker. All of it plays a role in teaching us to feel shame for our bodies. Like, who the fuck said I'm supposed to wear a bra? Like, who made that rule? Help me understand. You know, and whenever yeah. I ask people that, they're like stuttering. And I'm like, and the thing is, small breasted women, they walk around braless with hard nipples and a white t-shirt and no one gives a damn. But big breasted women, we're expected to gird ourselves all the time. And it's like, I'm fucking tired. My shoulders are tired. I'm not fucking doing it no more. And if you're uncomfortable, that's not my fucking problem. And really unlearning this sort of obligation that we feel to navigate other people's discomfort with our bodies. I'm not obligated to fucking do that. I'm sorry that all this ass makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> I, <laughs> My job here on this earth is to learn to love the fullness of myself and I don't have space for your discomfort. It was really 
over time, and I think this is a good way to describe, I think the whole journey that I've been on because of the hysterectomy and all the other things that happened, I think over time, just realizing that my self-acceptance and my ability to love myself has to be more important than making other people comfortable. Yes. Yes. It's funny how the older, and I don't know if you can relate to this, it feels like the older we get, the universe keeps on giving us lessons that you are not your body, your mm -hmm. body's your temple to decorate and modify however you want, but you are not your body, you are bigger than your body, you know? And yep. <laughs> yep. I resonate with that so much. And it's so funny because when you were saying, you know, when you were 19, same as me, I was in my 30s. I came up kinky in the Midwest. And the first time I was in a room with a bunch of Midwestern naked people, it was life-changing. Mm -hmm. It was seeing people just happy in their bodies, no matter their si all shapes, sizes, abilities, you, you name it. Mm -hmm. And people just live in their best life. I think everybody needs to do that. Everyone needs to be in a room of naked people at some point or another. No, they do. Because even when you face whatever judgments that you have inside of yourself, when you're forced to face that and see a room full of people who don't give a fuck, then you really, you really see how, how small of a factor other people's feelings or opinions or comfort with what you you know what I mean? Because uh -huh. you you can go into a room full of naked people and be like, oh my god, I can't believe she's out here like that, and she's still out here like that, no matter what the fuck you think about it. So, <laughs> and that to me is empowering because it it shows you how you diminish your power by putting other people's opinions or feelings or discomforts at the forefront of how you present yourself or how you accept yourself. Yes, 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 absolutely. So when you were talking to us last time, you talked about how you are now sexually different after your hysterectomy and how you no longer want to share your body sexually with emotionally broken people. And I was like, yes. So I want to hear more about that. Tell us more about how your sexual, spiritual, and relational awakenings interweave to bring you to this boundary. And so here's the thing. Even before then, I thought that I wasn't sharing my body with emotionally broken people, but really the, the internal work that I've been forced to do because of this whole journey, it's like, I can see, oh, that shit ain't right in ways that I couldn't see before. Yeah. And picking up on, it's like in ways that I'm not even purposefully doing, it's just, It'll happen and then I'll notice like, okay, that's different. Like for instance, before the hysterectomy, I was always big on like, I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to enjoy my sex life. If we're just dropping dick off, then that's what we're doing. And I'm not going to be pressed or I was always mindful of not coming across like, I wasn't clear on what the parameters of the situation ship were. So if we were just fuck buddies, then we just fuck buddies. Or if it's safe to have feelings, then it's safe to have feelings or whatever. And so like if a guy 
didn't call for a while and then popped back up, depending on how I felt about him, that might have been okay before all of this. And now I feel like, you know, I just, I actually told a guy who I hadn't talked to in a couple of weeks. I said, hey, you know, if you're trying to get to know me, that's awesome. And if you're not, that's awesome too. But what we're not going to do is we're not doing reach outs and then disappearing for a couple of weeks and then you pop it back up because I'm I, my energy is expensive and I'm not doing that this season. I just wanted to do a quick clarification because I hear the totality of the message that you're saying. Sometimes people get stuck on phrases. When you use the language emotionally broken people, what I hear you saying is you're talking about specifically people who treat you and, you know, they're not relationship ready. They're treating you in a way that is harmful for you. It doesn't sound like you're like shaming people that might be struggling with depression or shaming people that have some kind of emotional difficulty. It sounds like what you're saying is you're looking for people that are relationship ready, that know how to be kind, that kind of thing, right? And not even necessarily relationship ready, but people who are self-aware. Because my thing is like, we all have our shit and most of our shit ain't even our fault. But healing our shit is our responsibility. And if you're not exercising self-love in a way that wants you to deal with your bullshit, then there's no way that you're going to even know how to treat me. Right. And for me, I feel like society has done a really good job of tricking women into believing that being valued and being adored and being respected is something that, that has to be earned. No, the fuck it doesn't. First of all, why are you talking to me if you don't think I'm worthy of that? What the fuck? You know what I'm saying? And uh -huh. so... They do a really good job of tricking us into allowing half-ass behavior, half-ass effort because, oh, well, we're not in a relationship. So, okay, like I don't have to be a girlfriend to want to be treated with value and respect. And like, if I let you put your dick in my throat, call and see how my day is going the next day. Fuck that. Okay. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, don't, right. don't fucking play with me. So like, I, again, like, I think it's about not putting other people's comfort at the forefront of how you navigate what you believe you are worthy and deserving of. And I, I believe that I deserve to be treated well. And for me, it is particularly when my, my sex trauma therapist, she gave me homework once to focus on all the ways that love and romance show up in my life non-sexually. And that, that was a transformative assignment for me because I have traveled the world with my platonic friends. I have gone on dates almost every weekend this summer with men I'm not even sleeping with. I get affirmed and loved on and romance has shown up in my life in so many multitudes of ways from people who don't even, who ain't even trying to fuck me. So I'm sorry, even if we're not going to be in a serious relationship, you cannot just show up with your dick in your hand and feel entitled to my body. I'm sorry. No, because my platonic friends can't outboo you. They can't. Yeah, 
Absolutely. That sounds so powerful, you know, and I'm, I'm so happy you've had that experience. Let's see. So kind of along the same lines of some of the things that we've been talking about, but a little bit of a turn. You mentioned that last year, you know, while you're going through all this, it kind of stripped away who you thought you were in a lot of ways. For example, you said that you mentioned not having a uterus and you mentioned that you didn't have any fucking going on. And if you put that in spiritual terms, it sounded like you experienced something close to an ego death. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know what that means, an ego death is defined as a complete loss of subjective self-identity. And it, it often causes a psychic crisis, but then it's often followed by rapid emotional growth that almost feels too fast to bear. Mm-hmm. Does that feel akin to what you experience? Yeah, I call it a dark night of the soul, what I went through. But yes, it has resulted in an ego death. And I don't even know if I consider it like me becoming a new me. I'm more so considerate of returning to who I was originally destined to be before the world and trauma <laughs> injected all of the, the unhealthy bullshit. That's a powerful reframe. Really is. Frenchie, you told us you're a book nerd, which I'm like, yay, because I'm kind of a book nerd too. I want to know what is a book or books that have impacted you the most and why? Okay. Well, we talked about the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. I have every book that Tolkien ever wrote, like the, the histories of Middle Earth. I have all of them in addition to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. The Color Purple. So let me go back. So I love spiritual symbolism and I love fantasy fiction. And I always considered myself some sort of magical creature. So that is my obsession with like Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia and one of my other favorite childhood books, Charlotte's Web. Like, first of all, Charlotte was the best friend in history. Okay. In literary history. So don't even get me started. Anyways, (laughs) The Color Purple, which, you know, as a bisexual woman, that was a transformative piece of literature for me to experience. And especially seeing the film, I'm going to say the same about the women of Brewster Place. It was my first time ever reading about or seeing on screen Black women being in love. Wow. With one another. You know what I mean? The Seely Suge Avery love story. And then in the women of Brewster Place, Lorraine and oh, Paula Kelly played her partner in the movie. Oh, Lorraine and, and T, they were a lesbian couple in... Uh, who wrote the um, the woman who was to place? Uh, she wrote Lyndon Heights to Gloria Naylor. I believe that's the writer's name, Gloria Naylor. But it was my first time reading about and seeing on screen two black women in love with one another and experiencing that. And that was that was really powerful for me to experience the parable of the sour by Octavia Butler, who was a queer Black woman and one of the few Black women sci-fi writers. And Parable of the Sour, I feel like, I almost feel like it's a guidebook 
for how black women are going to survive whatever the fuck is going on in the world right now. Wow. She was so ahead of her time because so much of what was happening in that book, I could totally see that shit happening now. And then <laughs> Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. Let me tell you something. That white woman, she, let me, I don't. <laughs> I appreciate her. I really do. And I feel like her, her Heal Your Life workbook really helped me when I was in the dark, dark. Like, I don't even know. I feel like when I started reading her book, when I started working through the Heal Your Life workbook, that's when I started feeling like, damn, okay, all this work I've been doing, it, it, this shit might be working. <laughs> I might be making some progress. I might be coming out of the darkness here. Those are a few. That's amazing. You know, I, I've worked with trauma for just short of a decade. And so I've read a lot of trauma books, but I haven't read that one. And, and I'll have to read it because if it helped you, then it'll probably help a lot of my clients. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's focused on the power of our thoughts and unlearning all of the terrible things that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah, it, a lot of her and her her meditations and affirmations, a lot of them have been helpful for me. So yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so so let's say you mentioned that your spirituality is a hybrid that includes indigenous influences. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you actually this is I like to do little creative moments on this podcast. Okay. So this is this is one of these moments if you are willing to play. Okay. Okay. So I invite you to imagine a visual manifestation of the wisdom and love of your ancestors plus the presence of the divine feminine as you see her. Mhm. Mm when you picture that, this is the first question of a few. When you picture that in your mind's eye, can you share what you see? I see a black mermaid. <laughs> That's gorgeous. And when you really sense into her, what emotions come up and what do you notice in your body? Gratitude, some fear, <laughs> <laughs> or reverence, definitely. And sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large, depending on where I am mentally or emotionally. But even when I'm at my lowest of lows, or even when everything around me seems to be like, what the fuck is happening right now? There's always like that small voice that's like, you know, you're going to get through this. I don't know how. Or like, even when there's something that I want to do, I'm like, well, okay, we can come up with this money. I, I don't know how it's going to show up, but it's going to show up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that is, it is something that, that is helping me still recognize my own power. Yeah. So when you, when you connect with her, then all these things that you know to be true, even though you struggle with them, they start to come up for you yeah 
What does she look like? Can you tell us? Uh, so this black mermaid, like, can you can you like can you like flesh her out a little bit? I want to be able to picture her. Oh, she! Oh, I have her tattooed on my thigh. Actually, she has a big afro, and even with her mermaid fin, she got a big booty. And, <laughs> you know, she has. You know, she's a mother goddess, so she has a body like a curvy. She's like a plus size black mermaid with a big afro. And that's how I envision it. Do you have a picture of her on your IG? Yeah, on my thigh. Uh, my thigh tattoo. Yeah, it's on Instagram. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Took the question right out of my mind because I was like, I have to see this. Yes. So, <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as we're done, I'm going to Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's on there. So, okay, you had told us that it wasn't until you held your last lover accountable that he revealed his true self to you. So do you feel that a lot of his narcissism remained dormant when you had fewer boundaries or they enabled that to be? And I would love to hear you unpack this more and tell us more about your personal experience with this in particular. I do think that some of the narcissism lay dormant before I had to exercise firmer boundaries. But I definitely think that there were signs. There were definitely some red flags. He was really good at, with his words, at explaining them away when I would address them though. And that taught me that you, your intuition is powerful as fuck and don't let nobody talk you out of listening to yourself. Because I remember the day that I tried to friend zone this man. (laughs) I remember that day and I spent a lot of time beating myself up over that day because the sincerity of his words when he talked me out of it and the temporary actions that were shown in follow-up well, you know, narcissists are master manipulators. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I remember vividly the day that I tried to friend zone him and I spent a lot of time beating myself up over letting him talk me out of that. And then I even remember he got really upset because I brought up seeing other people. Because, well, my logic was like, I don't want to fight with people to get my needs met. (laughs) And if you still want to be around and you don't have the capacity to do it, then share me. (laughs) You know? That makes sense to me. (laughs) You know? And I mean, we fought about, like, we really argued about that. And in the um, moment, I thought, oh, he really cared about me. But now I see that that was was his ego. he was more concerned with having me to himself and not mentally being able to handle the thought of me doing all the nasty shit I was doing with him to somebody else. And he was more worried about that than he was about my needs being met. And now I know that I'm responsible for making sure my needs are met. And so now it's not, you don't get a vote. This is my decision because like Eartha Kitt said, compromise for what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I completely believe that we are always teaching others how to love us. And part of that journey is, is setting boundaries. And sometimes the boundaries are ending things, you know? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And kind of along those same lines, what did your old self find sexy? And what does this new self that's coming on board find sexy in partners? both with others, but also within yourself, actually. So within myself, it's weird. The things that I used to be most self-critical about are some of the things that I find sexiest about myself, like my thighs, like my fupa, like who knew that the little, the little tummy pouch over the pussy area was going to be like one of my favorite body parts. No, it's really the, (laughs) it's really the thigh upa, like where the fupa kind of like at the top part of the thigh that folds. Oh oh my God. It's so it's interesting how I have begun to view parts of myself as sexy parts of myself that I used to feel shame about Mm -hmm. that I now view as like, Oh, like, you know what? I like that. That's I like the way that looks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now, something that has not changed, I have always liked smart men. I just like smart people. I just think intelligence is sexy. The, the problem is that a lot of smart men think they're smarter than me and they're incorrect. But. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I put that on a plaque yeah. somewhere and hang it all over my house? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> But I love them nonetheless, you know, I find thoughtfulness sexy in a way that I, I don't, maybe I didn't fully appreciate. I I find like thoughtfulness a consideration. Like, I think that shit is sexy, you know, like when my guy friends come over and offer to take my trash out before they leave, I'm like, now see, that's my kind of shit. Okay. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) You know, yeah. So those kinds of things are sexy to me. Now, something that used to charm me that doesn't like empty compliments. I mean, I appreciate you telling me that you think I'm beautiful, but like, that's not, I can't do anything with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I I just had to tell a guy like, listen, you're not going to good morning, beautiful me to death. (laughs) <laughs> okay like you you've had my phone number long enough to know if you want to take me on a date or not have a plan next time you text me or don't fucking text me like i just don't have time no more <laughs> right you know because i just like i'm like i'm on a date right now i'm outside which and you texted me how was your day beautiful i don't have time for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know like things that were like pseudo thoughtful fake chivalry. There were things that used to, that I used to perceive as, as thoughtfulness or as chivalrous. And now I, I, I see some of it as like disingenuous bullshit. Cause there's a difference between behavior that is rooted in the belief that women deserve to be treated respectfully and treated well and behavior that's rooted in how can I get some pussy as the reward? You know what I mean? Like manipulative behavior rooted in maintaining a certain level of access to the pussy because the the pussy hit different when she care about you. And men know this. Right. Uh 
right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'd ask you what your favorite compliment was, but then you'd get like a bazillion emails with guys parodying that compliment. (laughs) Good morning, insert compliment here. (laughs) I just, I just, just show up authentic. Show up authentic and show up ready to spend your money because I fly myself first class and I travel the world alone. So it's already a party. Don't come to my party empty handed. Right. Nice. Nice. So (laughs) with us and our conversations and also on Instagram, you know, you talk a lot about your journey dating men. And as a black woman in the world, you know, you've got to deal with racism, you've got to deal with sexism. And I know you've got to deal with a handful of other isms as well. Mm -hmm. So in dating, some partners have the complexity of thought and the empathy to understand the intersectional impact of all of those factors. And others, you know, don't really so much. So can you tell us how your relationships have changed through this lens? Yes. Like I said earlier, I identify as bisexual. And actually, my last full-out committed relationship was with a woman. And we, you know, we lived together like it was the whole thing. But a lot of people notice that like in this present space, I talk about dating men more and living at the intersection of bisexual and black and fat and all of those things. What I struggle with, a lot of the lesbian women in our community, they have a biphobic issue like they have a thing about bisexual women and i i am at a space in my in my journey where i don't want to have to feel apologetic about any part of myself if you're going to be my lover and and don't like let me not give men too much credit because men they tend to hypersexualize or fetishize bisexual women Whereas my lesbian sisters tend to be a little biphobic and think that bi women are dirtier or like I've even had a girl tell me, you know, I date a bisexual girl, but we got to go get tested first. And oh, wow. I, yeah. And I don't, I don't have a problem if it's that's the rule. Like, you know, let's go get tested. But like the fact that you're singling out bisexual girls, I don't have time for that. Like just date a lesbian girl. But there is a fetishization of bi women that happens. And so it's almost like you want to be able to fuck me and belittle me at the same time. And I'm not doing it. I'm not signing up for that. Yeah. And so that I know that that has shifted. I was actually talking. I met this really cute girl. She's a drummer. Oh, my God. First of all, (laughs) you know, and I had I had to friend zone her because she went on a rant about bisexual people. And I'm like, see, I can't do that. Mm. She had a whole situation where like her and a guy that used to date her ex-girlfriend, like it was this whole like dick measuring contest. And I'm like, honey, I, like nobody, I, I can't. Mm. Yeah, that must have been disappointing. It was, you know, but I do understand that. I mean, I can't ignore the trauma that people have suffered from dating people who have not fully accepted themselves from dating people who have not been honest. I cannot sign up to bear the brunt of that. I mean, the whole DL culture and there's a lot of 
negative things that have been placed on bisexuality because there are communities of us who do not live authentically or truthfully. And I understand that. I'm just not going to allow understanding that to put me in a relationship dynamic where I'm apologizing for myself because I did that already and I'm not doing that again. Yeah, that's wonderful. Alrighty, so this is our last couple of questions, but I need to lead with a definition for those who might not know. Okay. And I think you and I have talked about this quite a bit. I know Sunny and I have. Mm-hmm. Something I talk about in my private practice all the time. It's the concept of positive affect tolerance, okay. which you could consider that having a tolerance for the yumminess of life. You know, having a tall, being able to really take in good things when they happen. And you would think that would be easy, but for folks with a hard backstory, it's actually really hard. Some people can't even take a compliment. You know, it feels like an itchy sweater. And everybody has a journey and everybody has little places in their life where maybe their positive affect tolerance is, is low. I'm always looking for that shit. So anyway, you have a lot of good stuff coming up. And I know you've been working on this stuff. And, and as I've often said, that building your positive affect tolerance, you can build that up like you can build up a muscle in the gym. Mm-hmm. But you got a lot of stuff rolling down the pike. And I just wonder, how are you building up your positive affect tolerance for that? And the second part of the question is, how will those skills feed into your upcoming album that you said is a reflection of the new you? The new you? Well, like I said, I don't know if I'm a new me. Uh, I don't know if that's how I would describe myself. I'm like, I'm an ever evolving me. I feel like I'm coming into myself as opposed to becoming a, a different version. I, I feel like I'm returning to myself, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of exercises that I have learned to um, implement in my daily meditations and in my yoga practice, you know, and there's a reason they call it a meditation practice and a yoga practice, because it takes that, it takes practice to retrain your mind and replace unhealthy belief patterns with, with affirming healthier ones that are rooted in, in love and acceptance of self. One of the things that Louise Hayes book had me start doing, I had to you know, look in the mirror every day, three times a day and say like, I love you. I really, really love you. It was interesting observing like how uncomfortable and itchy, like that part of us that doesn't know how to take compliments, how uncomfortable and itchy that shit made me at the beginning and Mm -hmm. how over time it became easier to like look myself in the eye in the mirror and be like, I really love you. Or getting in the habit of like, when I'm having a bad day, go I'll go look in the mirror and be like, you know what? I love you anyway. <laughs> and getting in the habit of, I repeat to myself every day, like I am, I'm more than enough. I deserve amazing shit. I, ha- I live an abundant life. And these are the things that I, I have gotten in the practice of saying to myself every day. And, you know, some people that may not resonate with some people, but I happen to be of the school of thought that our thoughts are immensely powerful 
And if we can begin to unlearn some of the negative thought patterns that we've carried with us our whole lives and replace them with affirming, loving thoughts, that it can transform our reality. It can transform. We can be a co-creator of the world around us. And do you feel like that's going to be fed into your music and, and your album? Well, this album is, it's an album of covers, this album that I'm doing, but it's my arrangements of them. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen my, I have a, an acoustic piano cover of the trap song, Trap Queen, that I did like six years ago. And then I, I did an, an acoustic piano cover of Lil Wayne's Lollipop. And I, I take these hip hop trap songs and I kind of make them acoustic piano ballads and people love that shit. That's what they come to see me do in my live shows. And so that's, I'm creating um, an album around that. And for me, this journey is reflected in that by just leaning into my gifts. You know, for years I've talked myself out of even trying to do an album because like, oh, I don't have the right team of songwriters and the right team of producers. And it's like, but even without the right, even without songwriters and producers, even with no record deal, even with no album, people still pay to come see you sing. And, mm -hmm. you know, your gift is enough. And there is a way for you to archive it in a recording. And that's, you know, what I've been working on, my arrangements of my favorite trap songs. I can't wait to hear it. I know. I can't wait either. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that I've gotten to get to know you, Frenchie, during this time in your life, because I feel like I've I've gotten to bear witness on this pretty amazing journey, even though it's been a lot of pain. Yes, it has been, but it has been an amazing journey. And I don't think that there's a shortcut or a cheat code around the pain part. Like, I think we all... Every person, you know, every being living a human experience is going to have their share of, of painful, gut-wrenching shit they have to work through, you know, and realizing that like, no, honey, you know, about God didn't single you out. Like the angels are not picking on you. Like literally hmm. we all, and it's not fair and it feels, right. it, it feels unfair. And once you, I think we talked earlier on the last episode about surrender. Like mm -hmm. once you're like, okay, so this is just spiritual law. That part of the human experience is that I'm going to get my fucking heart broken and I'm going to yeah. experience pain and I'm going to lose things and be forced to reevaluate myself and the way I look at myself and the way I look at the world. Yeah, I think it's spiritual law that we're all, you know, every human being is going to go through that. So like once you realize that part and be like, okay, so the universe is not picking on me. You know, this is a part of my, this is my allotted quota of fucked up shit that I have to go through in this human experience. <laughs> yeah. And once you realize that part, then you can let go some, because I think up until then you will continue to lean on the unfairness of it all. It's like you're you're going to keep fighting. It's like you're, you're mad and you're fighting to be right about how unfair this shit is. And it's like, honey, the universe already knows the shit is unfair. It's, it's part of the human experience. So now what are we going to do? Yeah. 
And certainly certain people get a better hand of cards than others, but we don't know why some people have more struggles than others. I'm sure you have your personal belief around that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what your assignment is in this life. Yeah. You don't really need to be that resilient if you're not going to do shit. But people who are destined to like make an impact on this world, like you, you got to go through some shit. Yeah. There's just no way around that. And for me there, you know, there's a fine line because I feel like I want us to societally unlearn this idea that black women have to relive all their trauma to be inspirational to other people. And watching the Tina Turner documentary opened my eyes to that. Like this woman's 81 years old and y'all still fucking asking her about Ike. Like it's fucking absurd actually. And, you know, so it's, I really want us to find that a better balance of Mm -hmm. continually asking powerful black women to relive their trauma for inspirational purposes, Mm -hmm. but also a balance between that and also allowing the space for, I mean, the very real truth that those who are destined to impact the world in in really significant ways are going to have to go through some, some stuff because it's unfortunately you're going to be a little ungrateful little shit. If you don't, (laughs) you're going to be an entitled ungrateful piece of shit. If (laughs) who's not even, you know, deserving of that. Like you said, what is it? The term that you used of being able to accept and allow the good to happen in your life. Positive affect tolerance. Yeah. I feel like there's a, the, that surrender is going that's going to be a necessary key to being able to experience that uh-huh. so that yeah. you can lean in to the good with gratitude and the full knowing that you deserve that shit before this episode comes to a close We wanted to be sure that we didn't forget the promise that we made you on our last episode with Frenchie. We alluded to the fact that Frenchie had a golden opportunity that was coming up that hopefully during this episode, she could announce to you. But lo and behold, when we recorded this conversation, it wasn't quite official yet. But we didn't want to leave you hanging. And We wanted you to hear it straight from Frenchie. So she recorded this little piece of audio for you so you can hear the wonderful, magical news. Here's Frenchie. So the news that I did not want to share just yet because it was not yet official is that I have been offered a professorship at my alma mater, Howard University in the Chadwick Bozeman College of Fine Arts. And the crazy part about the whole thing is I manifested this job. I literally spoke this into existence. So for those of you who don't know, Chadwick Bozeman, Chad, he was just Chad to us. Chad was a friend of mine in college. 
I met him like my first or second day of school. He stood outside of the room when I sang and auditioned for the theater department. And when he passed away, I, along with a couple of our favorite professors, had been invited to do interviews and speak with people about his life and and remember his legacy. And I remember in one of those interviews, I said to my former professor, you guys are going to have to honor Chad's memory and reinstate the College of Fine Arts. Because years prior, the university had dissolved the College of Fine Arts and made it a department within the College of Arts and Sciences. And a lot of fine arts alum and a lot of students fought really hard to stop that from happening. For many years, the College of Fine Arts at Howard was the only conservatory-style performing arts institution on a historically Black college campus, and for many years, the only all-Black performing arts conservatory-style institution. So it was a big deal, and Chad was at the forefront of that battle to keep the college as its own separate entity. So when I thought of that in the interview that I did after his passing, I said to our former professor, I said, you guys are going to have to honor Chad's legacy and you're going to have to reinstate the College of Fine Arts. And when you do, y'all call me and maybe I'll come back and teach. And it's literally a year later, like barely, actually like a few days before the one year anniversary of his passing. And they have reinstated the College of Fine Arts. They've named it after him. And I'm a professor. (laughs) Now, if I can just figure out how to and master the art of applying my skills of manifestation to some of the other areas of my life, we about to go all the way up. And that's my story. Well, thank you so much, Frenchie, for choosing to share a pretty personal and difficult story with us. You decided to choose anyway to inspire us, and you didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But you you took the agency, you decided to come on the podcast and do that. Yes. And I just want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for, again, for doing the intro and the outro with the Baltimore yes. Bull for yes. this podcast. Yes. Thanks for asking me to do that. And thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, and we wish you all the very best with all the amazing upcoming endeavors. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, absolutely. And and listeners, we invite you to join us again when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply.
Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.